0: Hey Guerreras, this is Audia. I know I owe you a huge explanation as to why you haven't had a new episode as of date. Well, for the past couple of weeks, honestly months, I have been working on various campaigns locally and statewide and you know the past six weeks have been crazy for anybody else out there that has been volunteering in campaigns. This has been one of my most important elections to date and I wanted to do everything in my power to be involved. But Without further ado, I am bringing you one of my most favorite episodes to date, two of my favorite heroes, Dr. Celeste Montoya, associate professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and political scientist in the Department of Women and Gender Studies, as well as Mariana Galvez Seminario, who is an undergraduate student at the University of Colorado. Today, we are talking about their article, Guerreras y Puentes, The Theory and Praxis of Latina Ex-Activism. I know, two of my most favorite things. So, let's get into today's episode. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the Guerreras podcast on your favorite streaming platform and also follow us on Instagram at guerreras underscore pod. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It's really a special one for me.
1: Hey Guerreras, in today's episode, I talked to Dr. Celeste Montoya and her co-author, Mariana Galvez Seminario, on their latest article, Guerreras y Puentes, The Theory and Praxis of Latina Activism. In their article, they talk about how Latinas have long played a vital but under-acknowledged role in U.S. social justice movements. The complexity of Latinas hybrid racial and multifaceted identity shapes, but also obscures their activism, placing them at the juncture of or in the space between movements. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Both of these individuals are formidable researchers, but also leading the conversation about Latinas and social movements and how Latinas use their voice. To move the political institutions and also the communities that they reside in. If you like today's content, don't forget to look at the episode notes that I upload on our Instagram page, which you can click on our bio, and also follow Dr. Celeste Montoya's and Mariana Galvez Seminario's work. Honestly, this is something that is going to help us understand how Latinas are so powerful within the movement. But also, Don't forget to follow all of our content on our Instagram page at Guerreras underscore pod. Enjoy today's episode. Hi, everybody. This is Audia and welcome to Guerreras. In today's episode, we have two fantastic guests, Dr. Celeste Montoya, Associate Professor at the University of Colorado, Boulder, and Political Scientist in the Department of Women and Gender Studies. We also have Mariana Galvez Seminario, undergraduate student, and also Dr. Montoya's co-author, in her most recent published article, Guerreras y Puentes, The Theory and Practice of Latina Activism. Thank you so much for both of you for being here. It is a moment where I'm really gushing because I have two formidable individuals with me today. Dr. Montoya, I mean, I studied Latinas in politics in my master's and you came up all the time. So I feel like I'm in the presence of a rockster. Um, And Mariana, I mean, we follow each other in hashtag academic Twitter world, but also everything you post. I mean, we really did bond over the Shakira album. And I think if our friendship is really gonna last after that, because we (laughs) know this. So thank you both for being here. And of course we start with some introductions a little bit about yourself when really for the guerreras listeners to get to hear i mean i may be a little biased because the title of the article but i still would want them to hear a little bit of your story but how you got to this moment today beyond studies but maybe how you found your calling so doctora montoya we start with you
2: sure um so I've always really been interested in, in politics and government going back to high school. Um, I think I was always uh, really fascinated with those classes, but also in seeing the way that it impacted my life. I think my wake up political moment in terms of activism was in Colorado when Amendment 2 um, was being put to vote. Uh, it was a, an amendment that was really restricting LGBT. Um, rights in Colorado and it just I you know I remember being in high school and it striking me as just profoundly wrong Um, that it went against everything like my parents had taught me about treating people with respect and it was really the moment that I started to, to really pay attention to the way that our political system worked and to get involved in people who were mobilizing against it. And so I think my love of social movements um, because that sense of power it gives when you're feeling helpless by things that are happening within your government, um, really, um, it just made such a profound influence upon me that there was really no going back. And so um, when I was an undergraduate and a graduate, I continued to study social justice, um, looking at the ways um, in which people mobilize in institutions and outside of institutions and how groups that are continually marginalized um, can still come together and be powerful and to enact change. And so, you know, that's something that has always inspired me intellectually, but also personally. So um, so yeah, so that's you know that's kind of what got me into what I'm doing. Um, I also love teaching and that's a, a really big important part of, of my identity was, you know, I love my research and I love working with people, but I also like sharing that knowledge and, and working to inspire students. Um, one of uh, my positions at the University of Colorado is the director of the Miramontas Arts and Science Program, which is a program for first-generation and underrepresented students. It's how I got to know Mariana, um, and um, you know, I feel like it's all of all of the things I do, kind of fit together uh, the research I do the classes I teach the service um, I engage in it just to me it all makes sense in my head <laughs> and so um, it's very rewarding and so even in these difficult times where balancing uh, work and life well you know this these you know these twin pandemics are going on of, of covid and uh, racial um, inequality and oppression um, that that this work kind of keeps me going that I can keep doing my job because to me it's you know it's doing the things that matter most to me
1: and you are one of the few people that i hear that are like oh and teaching like i also love that <laughs> <laughs> so i was thinking back and it's like how many times did my professors say that they love teaching when i was in my seminar it was one <laughs> of them you were inspired from a moment in your youth and how that has translated this moment so really taking action in that transformative justice lens
3: we'd love to see it
1: oh, <laughs> mariana how about yeah. you
3: <laughs> i came in um of course i've only been doing this work for like three years but i came in and i started almost accidentally doing abortion work because there is there is this organization on campus called the Brazen Project and they worked with pro-abortion work kind of destigmatizing it around campus but I quickly wanted to sort of engage with abortion in more intersectional ways. And I didn't have that language back then. I just knew I wanted to work with my community. And Dr. Montoya suggested that I uh, find Calor, the Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights. And I went to my first event and immediately fell in love with them. Like they are, they're my family. They're my go-to just home. Like whenever I think of this bridge called my back and the revolution begins at home, like home for me, um, at least for now is, is Um, And they, they're a reproductive justice organization, uh, which is an intersectional human rights-based approach to reproductive politics, et cetera. Um, And as soon as I started to really, really engage with reproductive justice work and with my calor Familia, I I needed someone to to share that with to share that in like excitement with and Dr Montoya became my go-to person that I always like I'd walk into her office and tell her about this cool new thing that I'm doing with Calor and we realized that our work overlapped and I think that's how uh, we came to write this paper together Calor does have a spotlight on on the article and. I, I'm not sure which came first, Kalor uh, or this article <laughs> with Dr. Montoya and my relationship with her, but I am very thankful about it uh, because I get to really see myself as, as a guerrera, as a puente to, like, to, to a better world. Um, and then I get to put that out there into the world and make others feel the way that I feel through, through what I'm doing. I wish I could have like a snapping like sound
1: like then the radio (laughs) and put like the applause and just like be pressing that right now. (laughs) And and that is so incredible and also reassuring to hear that when we find our calling and how hard we are willing to fight to be in those spaces, to transform, to learn, to grow and to bring those like that learning into our communities, right? And yes, Color, I love that organization. I am a donor of theirs. You know, I did some of my work with the National Organization for Women in DC. And, you know, we all get to choose, you know, wh- where do you want to donate for like as individuals? And when I found about Color, if I even tried an applying, honestly. So <laughs> I was just like, uh, actually, I would like to work with it. Uh, but less to say, the organizations that, br- that you bring into the article and I must admit when I first came across this article of course biased as I said it's had Guerreras in the title and I was so curious to read it because it has cited two of my favorite people that I have met in the academic world and I must admit even yesterday when I was reading it again I was overcome with joy in a way that is, and I feel like both of you will understand coming, like you wrote about activism. You wrote about people in the movements that are leading um, the causes and that really affect us in a person. And such a deep level that as much as we try and conceptualize the thought of like how how some of us are, the matters that affect us are so personal that sometimes you just have to even put a book down. Because you're reading about your own history, about the idea of like somebody understands what I have gone through, is trying to, or is at least validating my existence. And when I was reading the article, I felt validated. That's why I say I I felt I was overcome with joy because when I have tried to explain what Guerreras is, right? And you were like, Guerreras, female warrior in Spanish. And people are like, oh, fighting the movement. Well, yes, but you know, it's because all the the women in my life the Latino women in my life are the ones that have inspired me to stay within the movement. So really it is that warrior spirit that women carry that has made me want to even continue and get up on the days that I don't. So when I was reading your article, you know, you describe the women as translators and bridge builders. And I don't, I don't quite think that a lot of people that are are either not Latinx um, or are, but don't quite understand what that means get how pivotal the role of a bridge builder is, you know, and we go back and don't worry, I'm going to link it all these things into the episode notes for the listeners. I really, I really want you to kind of explain to me why you chose those words to describe these women. And also how, if you have a story that you're comfortable in sharing, who has been the woman or who have been the women that inspired for you to get to this moment? Because this is also part of Guerreras, right? Our story starts somewhere.
2: You know, I think it really goes back to, um, to reading Anzalduet. And, and for me, that's, that is a very personal experience. You know, I didn't have a lot of exposure to Latinas in academia when I was, when I was going through uh, the academy. I didn't have, Latina professors and very rarely was I assigned Latina scholarship or um, even learned about Latinas and it wasn't really until I was a professor at CU that I picked up Anzal Due and and read it and when I read it oh it's hard to even describe without I'm going to get all all teary <laughs> but it was the first time that I ever read a piece of scholarship that I saw myself in it right that there was so much that I read in there about this feeling in between and not belonging. And, and and you know, not belonging, but belonging, like being a part of so many different places, but not feeling that I fully fit within any of those places. And, and I could think about all the experiences I had where like, I literally had to move between spaces to get the different parts of myself, right? That, you know, even in political science, right? Uh, some of the spaces that have been really important for me in staying in it have been like the Women's Caucus and the latino caucus mm-hmm. and but often those would be scheduled at the same time and like they were so important to me and i'd be like rushing between between the two right and so many of us latinas like would kind of laugh about that but also be frustrated with that about and it was such just to us, it was just so emblematic of, of everything, like, of always being in that in-between place, of the mestiza, of, you know, for me, uh, the different parts of my racial background, right, that, you know, it just, that, that not fully fitting within it, and, and being able to read that, just, it, it, what you said earlier, it just validated me, like, for once, I was like, that, that's me, like, that's, these feelings I've been having, or even the ideas that I have, the the sense that I've made of the world, my scholarship, you know, my work in intersectionality, I was like, this comes from someplace deeper, it's not just this academic, intellectual exercise, like, this is something that's an embodied experience that, like, that means something more. And so, so for me, I think that, you know, the language that that Anzaldua uses, the bridge, you know, talking about being a bridge, um, like, that's part of where it came through um, some of the work I've, I've, you know, I've read about intersectionality talks about that, the importance of being able to be a political translator of explaining things to different groups. And that those I mean, those were things that I, I've experienced, like, I've, I've had to do that sort of work. And it just seems to make sense that there are so many, like, there are so many activists that like, that's what they're doing all of this time. And they're very rarely getting recognized for the labor that goes into trying to find that common ground for people, like the burden that there is for for having to mobilize in multiple directions (laughs) and and not being able to just pick one place to focus. And so, you know, for me, that's, I was like, that that was, you know, it was my experience as much as it was these uh, Latinas and Latinx activists that we were trying to talk about.
3: Oh, that's so beautiful. And I'm glad you went first because for those reasons, you are one of my big Guerrera um, role models. I came to this country when I was eight years old and I sort of went into um, like a space I grew up, not around any other uh, Latinx or Latino people um, except, well, my parents. Um, And I didn't really see myself, right, in in any position other than people that went and and did uh, domestic housework, which is so important and so just, The way that they were treated, though, made me feel that going to college or going to school wasn't um, what people expected me to do or something that they would respect me being in, in the space of. And so when I did come to school and the first Latina I saw was this incredible just Latina scholar that wrote about Latina politics. And then I started reading her work and realized not only that we are political actors uh, for the very first time. I mean, I was I was what I was 18. um, And so I hadn't really seen Latinas in politics either, but also that I could have a job, that it was possible to have a job where you write about Latina politics. That was brand new to me. And as soon as I saw that, I decided that working for a like a political organization that works on abortion work or, or engaging with Calor was was even something in, in my list of options. And as soon as I started, you know, working with Calor, I saw even more people that are just so incredible and I could spend all day talking about who just day in and day out, spend their whole heart working for our community. And I'm so thankful for them. That is,
1: this just gives me so much hope that there are folks out there really doing the work, but because they love it, because they breathe it, they believe it. And for those, of, uh, those who are listening that maybe are not that involved in activism, which is okay, everybody's in a different point of their liberation and their consciousness awareness and it's fine. I think this, this year and these past four years have pushed us all to recognize our values and the mission in which we must fight in. And I hope people recognize that the work that scholars like Dr. Montoya and soon-to-be scholar, but you also already are, Mariana, is that there are people out there that care about us. There are people out there that are doing the work and actually see our community as individuals. In your paper, you mentioned that Latinas are, like other women, are at the intersection of multiple marginalities. They occupy a strategic group position that can play a critical role in envisioning and facilitating new coalitions and collaborations. For those that are listening, they're like, what did she just say? Could you uh, give us a little spark notes as to what strategic group position means? I don't want people to be scared. They're like, oh gosh, I have to read an article. Like, hey, the folks are here and they're gonna explain to you what that means. So when it comes to strategic group position,
2: could you develop more on that? So I think, you know, one of the ways to think about it, right, is um, in in that we talk about like your personal position doesn't necessarily dictate how your politics are gonna look like, but at the same time, it can be extremely influential, right? So for somebody who occupies a position, you know, that they can have empathy for a group that they don't belong to and try to include them. But for somebody who embodies multiple social locations, who has, has ownership to different groups, right, that there's something more to that, um, that if they're aware and conscious of that that belonging, then they are going to, have a different sort of motivation, right? A different sort of motivation to to include all of those groups, right? To because first of all, you know, you you don't leave part of your identity, you know, in a box, right? Like today, I'm only going to be a woman, or today, I'm only going to be a Latino. Like you know, it, it it's not like that. Those things are always who you are, and so there's a different sort of consciousness that is possible. It's not necessarily inevitable, but there's a certain consciousness that that's available and a motivation to getting those works to see each other and work together. Because if not, you know, it's, it, it almost feels like a sort of violence right? When, um, when you're a part of a group that then is attacking or ignoring a vital part of your identity, then it's it's kind of a way where you do feel like then you're being asked to choose, right? Anzaldua talks about this, talk, talks about kind of having to, like feeling like she's being split between movements, that they're having her cut, you know, into a million different pieces uh, and choose and prioritize those different pieces. And you know when you're at the intersection of of those different identities like you're you're aware of that and it it gives you insight um motivation to do the coalition work um if for no other reason so that you yourself (laughs) can be whole right and this is like maria lagones talks about this too and mariana could probably speak a little bit more to that because she was the one mariana was the one who brought to my attention that the world traveling that Lagones talks about just very much fits into this. So Mariana, do you wanna talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, going going off of these different group positions, right? So it it can be a site of of violence and of uh, like you were saying that part of your identities might be overlooked or even like ignored in those groups but then you also have a site of of possible empathy, right, with those groups. So, if um, I'm going to use myself as an example, right? So, I'm a queer Latinx non-binary person. I'm just love that. <laughs> when <laughs> when I'm in a group of of mostly queer folk, um, and it's not an an explicitly cutiepox space, it's it's most likely going to be mostly white folk. Um, and it's not out of out of malice, uh, but there might be some some things that might come up. Where where racial violence might show up in ways that are not uh, intentional, um, and because they see me as as part of their community, um, when I bring up something about race, something about some uh, that they might need to take into consideration when talking about those communities, they are probably more likely to listen to me and take it in and really wish for that community to be whole. Or if I'm in, in a group full of Latinos, I, I doubt that most of them are gonna be queer. Um, and so if I, if I bring up issues about uh, queerness, they're more likely to listen to me than to someone who isn't Latino, who is also queer. Um, so it, it's a way to bridge those communities together and really see um, how we are all one. And what um, Maria Lugones brings into this uh, is, um, she she brings up this, this idea that we all exist in multiple worlds, right? So if I'm walking down the street, um, maybe, maybe, um, if if a white man sees me, I'm going to assume a lot of things about this man, but um, that he he might see me as someone who could potentially get really angry really fast if he if he says something Um, or someone who is a pessimist because everything I talk about politics uh, might be might be really, really dark. And they say, like, why why do you hate everything? Um, but I see myself as, as an optimist, because if I'm bringing these things up, it's because I believe that they can change. Um, or my, my community, my queer community, might see me as someone who's really energetic and maybe brings way too many cupcakes to every meeting because we have to have snacks. <laughs> um, and all these different um, parts of myself, all these different ways that people view me as, um, are different and sometimes contradictory. How am I a pessimist and an optimist at the same time? Um, But because they view me this way and because the way that they view me has real consequences in the world, um, I am all of those things. Um, And maybe I might not think that I'm a pessimist, but if I bring something up, if if I say something that might be viewed as angry, then I'm animating those, those ideas of them in me. If I learn how to world travel, and that's her word for it, It's being able to strategically and deliberately travel between those worlds that I exist in. And through that, I am able to to bridge communities together because I'm conscious of of the ways I show up in the world, according to Lugoñes,
1: And also the fact, like how you explained, what you explained you go through, Mariana, and what you do, and how you not only present yourself in these spaces and your identities, but how you choose to use those identities to not only empower, but bring light into a situation of those that you that, that are part of your community, is—that is, that is not second nature to people. That is something that has to be learned, unlearned, and learned again as we progress in our communities, as we progress in our identities. It is work that if you are willing to do it, and I think for anybody listening, please do so. It is not, you don't just wake up one day and you're like, I know my identities, I am for sure. I know how I want to present myself in the world. It isn't like that. It's not this binary that we are held against the wall of like, well, you're either A or B, you're either straight or gay, you're either this and that. I'm like, did you not, all this work that so many of us are doing is like, it's so we don't have to be pinned to just these three heteronormative identities that we are all constrained to. You all mentioned this throughout in, in the article, not all Latinx organizations have an intersectional lens or intersectional praxis in their mission, but the organizations that you bring up like Voto Latino, Color, United We Dream, and Causa Justa, you also did a great, great job in explaining, you know, this is how they began, youth activism, abortion work, the dreamers, but really how as time has progressed and you mentioned the election of a new president, how that ha- pushed <laughs> these organizations to be like, oh, holy crap, like we, we gotta change how we approach things because we can't just be a single issue organization anymore. And that is so important. As somebody that was taught activism by black women, when the Black Lives Matter movement began in the Bay Area, I signed myself up so fast, because I I share um, part of your story, Mariana. I moved to the States when I was 13, and my first introduction to America was racism, was being told that because of my name, because of where my mother and I came from, I should go to a predominantly Latinx school, because they didn't think I could make it in the school that actually was in my district. And they told me, well, you just maybe don't talk, well, English well enough to like keep up and you're not going to fit in and why do you look like that and why do you choose to talk like that that was my first introduction to to America and as hard as this has been to be queer Latina immigrant in this country now that I am a citizen I now take up the mantle that I must respond for the sins of this country and when I first learned about racism towards the black community, slavery, the history of it, I became so enraged to be part of that. And even though if, even if my ancestors didn't, that that is a history of humanity that we all must carry. And learning about activism from black women and them sharing their stories, I realized how so much of our power and so much of that world traveling that you mentioned, Mariana, comes from learning how other women of color have also traveled in their spaces and, and it's recognizing that. And one of, the, one of the things that I also want to talk to you about is like women's movement. Latinas are left out of the women's movement and the women's agenda constantly, constantly. And I know this is a little bit off script. However, I, I want to hear your thoughts on the coalition building. Because like you mentioned, sometimes people demand, are you a woman today or are you Latina? Or, or what identity are you going to decide to be at the forefront? When that is not it, that is not how we choose to present ourselves. That isn't how we should present ourselves. That's how, what we should unlearn, what we should unpack. What are your thoughts on not, not only coalition building and the strategy of it, but really your thoughts as folks that study this? Why doesn't feminism work for us? Why does feminism keep forgetting us? You know, it's pretty open-ended, but if I could hear your thoughts about it, that that would be amazing because I want people to know we haven't forgotten this. I haven't forgotten it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I haven't forgotten that feminism forgets us. Um, That's redundant. However, it is difficult to explain why because as much as I try and try to be part of those movements, they keep shutting me out.
2: I don't know what it is that I've done. So I have kind of like... My academic response, but then also probably my personal response. And so, um, academically, like I'm, I'm actually working on this piece right now. That's kind of looking at intersectionality and social movements. That's providing an overview. And um, you know, in it, there, there is this tendency within social movements, right, that you're trying to create this collective identity, and you're trying to kind of come up with this simple unifying message, this you know, sort of universal truth, and with that there's a tendency in social movements to oversimplify right that that you're trying to get as many people as possible on board on you know for a common cause and how identity has played into that has often been t- to focus on on one ad- identity on one form of oppression right so with the feminist movement the focus is on gender oppression um, you know, the, we look at the gay rights movement, the LGBT movement, and that's, you know, that's even a coalition, but still in terms of looking at sexuality rights um, and mobilizing on, on those behalfs and, and dealing against um, with some of the oppression that's been in that direction. With civil rights movement, the focus is often on race. And so, um, and uh, sometimes race broadly, sometimes specific ethno-racial groups, right? So there's this tendency to, to kind of, to do that sort of simplification because those groups are heterogeneous, right? women are different. <laughs> um, people who are part of the LGBT community are different um, within, you know, just because you share an ethno-racial identity doesn't mean that there aren't these other relevant differences. And so you emphasize that one dimension in order to kind of bring that sort of commonality that we, you know, you can come together to to have this collective action that's necessary for doing it. But at the same time, I think that when people do that, they start um. They, they overlook difference in the relevance of it, right? And, and yes, it is important to find common cause, right? It is important to, to find the things that bring us all into the space to together, but ignoring difference um, is not the way to build a solidarity, right? Ignoring differences means that you're defaulting to the most privileged within that group, right? So within feminism that has been kind of white, upper middle-class, you know, straight, cisgendered um, women and, um, And so there's a tendency to do that. But at the same time, also, I also want to push back that that's always been what's happened. Because I also think that when we look historically, there have been women of color as a part of feminist activism throughout history. And sometimes we as scholars also oversimplify and that when we study those movements, the stories we emphasize and focus on are also defaulting to the most privileged within those groups, whether because they're the most visible, whether we're just reflecting the power structures that have happened within those movements. But we're also in in a sense giving also uh, an overly rigid and somewhat false narrative of that movement, right? To overlook the women who were operating maybe in the margins of that movement maybe across movements or creating their own spaces, but nonetheless should be considered a part of that movement, right? So in that sense, if we look back in history, we see that Latinas have always been a part of the feminist movement, whether or not they were welcome there, whether or not their voices were heard the loudest, you know, whether or not they were historicized in the same way that white feminists were, they were there. And so part of, you know, part of the mission of intersectionality, part of its, its goal um, for activists is to bring visibility, right? To bring visibility to those that, that are often marginalized, to bring it, bring to center the analysis to the experiences of those that are, are operating in the between spaces. But then that should also be our project within the academy is that's what intersectionality does there is to make sure that we are also bringing visibility, um, bringing voice to showing the experiences of those people that were already present, which is which is what I felt like with this project we were really trying to do. Right. Like Latinas have always been there. (laughs) They have always been there. They have been at this, you know, been working and doing the labor of, you know, some of the difficult, overlooked, underappreciated labor of coalition building in all of these different social justice movements, you know, just the way that women of color have queer women of color, right, that there, there have been these actors that we do, we do not see. And so it becomes so important to make sure that we are seeing them in a way that doesn't minimize their contributions, that recognizes them and that really brings them to the forefront, right? That we're at a moment in our political history where the only way we're gonna overcome the oppression that we continue to experience is if we come together, which means doing that coalition building. And you know, for this paper that we were trying to say is look, look at the people who have been doing this work all along and follow them for once, right? Follow them, don't rely on them, but listen to what they have to say and put them at the center. And if we do that, then we're gonna have the coalition we need to overthrow this, right? To, to have a better future.
1: I am getting that whole quote into a shirt. And, <laughs> um, I feel so inspired. And just like you said, it's, it's listening to us, listen to us and I don't know if you had a chance to read Hood Feminism yet by Mickey Kendall. She says, um, I don't need allies. I need accomplices, right? I need accomplices that you're going to go and fight with me too, that you're going to listen to me, that you're going to take my needs seriously. It's a lot like Roxanne's gay, bad feminist, right? It takes that approach of like, okay, you want to th- talk about feminism in this nice, cute, frou way, but really there's some of us that are trying to work 10 times harder because y'all won't listen to our needs. But Mariana, I know you got something to say. You and I were
3: snapping super loud with this. Um, I think one of the biggest things this makes me think of is the work that I'm doing right now with um, my honors thesis and an example of where uh, intersectional praxis has been successful. And that is the reproductive justice movement. Um, So in 1994, right, 12 Black women got together um, at a room at a conference in Chicago because, they're like, all right, what, are, what do we need as black women from the reproductive rights movement? And they decided that the right to have children, the right not to have children and the right to parent children in safe and healthy environments. Um, and then later uh, the right to bodily autonomy was added. And what's beautiful about this framework is that A, it looks at it through a human rights framework. Right, and so it's not about privacy. It's not about I want the government out of out of my reproductive life. It's the government has a a responsibility to make sure that I have my human rights. But more than that, it's it's a loose but but very specific set of of demands, um, which means that identity isn't necessarily centered in the movement, um, and it's also not ignored. Um, what it is, it's destabilized. What I'm arguing in my thesis is that if if we think about Kathy Cohen, um, who, if, if folks don't know, in 1997, she wrote about how the, uh, the queer movement can't just focus on the binary of those who are queer and those who are heterosexual because power doesn't necessarily work along those lines. Um, and so those that are queer can could be heterosexual because their non-normative sexualities are still repressed by the state and by society. Um, and so I'm arguing that the constituency and the, and the activists and the people of the reproductive justice movement are, are what Kathy Cohen calls queer, right? Those whose norm, non-normative sexualities are then used as, as, as a form of, uh, of leveraging reproductive oppression and violence on them by the state. Um, And what this movement does is is, uh, say a a white lesbian in in 1994 and a black woman, a black heterosexual woman in 1994 might've been queer in different ways according to Kathy Cohen, but as time goes by now perhaps a white lesbian now has more rights and her sexuality is less non-normative than a Black heterosexual woman now. And so what the movement kind of follows is that the relationship to power is what drives the coalition building. It's not the identities um, that does it. Identities aren't ignored, um, but identities aren't the only thing that is centered and the only thing that is used to build those connections. And so we show up at all the things, we show up at uh, family separation at the border, we show up at police brutality, uh, anti-police brutality marches, we we show up at just all of these different things because they all impact our reproductive lives. Um, And of course, this is an example, this isn't how most movements function, but I, I think it's important to highlight a site where it has been successful and a site where Latinas have taken part. Um, But it's been their Latinidad and it's been their their ability to to build bridges, but build bridges along other sites, too, Um, and how how their lives have have overlapped with with other
1: activists. Yeah, that is so greatly put is the relationship to power. And again, those, uh, this is something that has come up in multiple episodes as well, because I think we also recognize that power looks very different for every single one of us. And political agency, the the platforms that we use, that's all power. But how are you powerful when you are a woman, a woman of color, a queer non-binary person? How are you powerful when you are at the multiple layers that make you who you are? How do you then use power? And what does that look like? But you brought up such a good point, Mariana, is the relationship to power. And identities, our identity is important. And for some people, it may be central, it is the thing, maybe the thing that drives you. But also, there is more than identities. And I think that is something that so many of us are trying to unpack as um, this moment of, social reckoning and political reckoning is happening in our in our country but it has been happening it has been brewing this is just the moment where like the cork went off and folks are just trying to come together and like what, what did we miss and i was like well like uh, like a couple centuries of like oppression and um all these racist sexist kind of laws that you've been ignoring but now we're not and uh, you know one of the one of the most central things about this podcast in Guerreras is getting our listeners to hear this, to hear how they are, how they relate to the current movement today, or if they have ever thought that they weren't important enough to use their agency, to raise their voice. You know, I love the word of racing consciousness. Guerreras actually became uh, began as a consciousness racing group in Chico, California that's my thing. I was like, let's just talk about these issues that you thought were beyond your scope of understanding. But let me talk to you about it. Let me make little baby radicals right now. uh, But the organizations that you pointed out, I'm shouting them out again, because I love them. Voto Latino, Color, United We Dream, and Causa Justa. Because I I know people from each of these organizations that have worked with it. The individuals that are within it are not doing this because of popularity. They believe in what they're doing. And it is that belief that has made them, and I'm not using the word successful as like because they're profitable, but they have reached the goal that they wanted to, they reached what they wanted. Get youth interested in voting, get youth registered to vote, have a conversation about reproductive justice in your communities, be able to. Um, Create reform policy reform and activist reform for the immigrant um, For immigrant causes, you know criminal justice system. How do we change that? Just those conversations in itself are liberating the question for all my guests is always piece of advice to others listening consciousness awareness unpacking oppression finding your your goal, your mission, what you want to do in your life is not linear. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be moments in which you question yourself. You question your work. You question if what you're doing. is even right to begin with. And I want to ask you all, what is not only a piece of advice, an anecdote, maybe a book for those that are listening to keep them in the movement. I say this with all the all the love in my heart. Sometimes I lose hope. Sometimes I lose hope because the emotional labor of being in these movements costs me part of me, but I'm still willing to do it. I just have to recognize that that burnout's gotta be real. Something you'd like to share with our guerreras before we go?
2: So one of the things that I often um, talk to my students about because I feel like I teach them all the things that are are horrible in this world, right? All the different oppression that exists. And a lot of times for some of those people, Um, It's maybe taking off um, the blinders like it's uh, it's making them aware of things that they weren't aware of. Uh, Sometimes it's, you know, maybe they got a piece of it because of their own experiences, but I'm pushing them to go further in it. And it's really easy to get overwhelmed in this political moment. It is very easy to get overwhelmed. And that's where I always kind of think about why, you know, to me, it's been so important to focus on social movements, both in studying them, but also just watching and being a part of them is because I truly believe that social movements are inherently optimistic, right? They often get portrayed as angry and pessimistic and critical and all these sort sort of kind of negative sorts of ways. But if people didn't believe that something better was possible, they wouldn't be out there risking their lives, right? And so to kind of remember that, to remember to envision the future that I want to be a part of, and, and to do what I need to to do it. And that's where also looking at these people, our, our ancestors before us, um, they weren't always welcome into spaces, but they made their own spaces. And I feel like that is kind of what keeps me moving forward and not only to, to kind of find my own space and build my own space, but to make a space for others, right? And so the work that I do in, the university, um, the work that I do in my scholarship is to create those spaces so that other people don't have to fight so hard to do it. And so, you know, when I'm getting tired, when I'm getting exhausted, I just look to those, you know, to those people who came before me to the, to those ancestors, to those Carreras, (laughs) you know, and, and sometimes those the ones that were in my family, right. The ones that um, have kept me going and say like, no, this is important. This is too important to give up. I still believe, I still believe that there is something better than what we've been given and that I can't wait for anybody else to get us there. Um, that I'm gonna make sure that I'm giving it my all in whatever way, whatever talents that I have and whatever talents you have, they might be different. You know, you might be a writer and or an art, artist. Um, you might be a speaker or a teacher, right? There, you know, you might be the warrior who's ready to go out there in the streets. Whatever it is that you can bring to this movement, it is welcome, it is necessary, it is gonna reach somebody um, and that you can bring those talents to make that, that future.
3: The the first thing that came to mind was something that another professor said to me earlier this year. Um, that sort of I always keep in the back of my head um, is that in in past times, um, past movements have been have been optimistic, have have wanted a better world, uh, but have sort of gone at the pace of of survival, right? Especially especially like um, I'm thinking about the LGBT. Movement of just we're we're just trying to survive. Um, but what's so beautiful about this moment, um, and and maybe it's so scary, right? But what's so beautiful about this moment is that we're daring to dream bigger. We're daring to dream of like how can we make this world what we want it to be from the start. We're not we're no longer saying we are okay with with just surviving. We are daring to dream much bigger than that, um, and. As impossible as it might seem, and I do lose hope sometimes too, um, is, is just sitting down and daring to dream bigger. And like Dr. Montoya said, in whatever, whatever way that might bring you to the table is okay. Even if it's just um, raising consciousness in yourself, and whether that's reading Borderlands La Frontera by Gloria Saldua, or just sitting down and, and painting your feelings out that's going to make a difference because we're daring to dream bigger. And that's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Because daring
1: to dream bigger must be one of the scariest things that a lot of us don't allow ourselves to do. It's building that, that hope. If I dare to dream bigger and I fail, which is usually the first thing that people say, what if I fail? But if you dare to dream bigger, like so many more things are going to be possible and it doesn't have to be Restructuring all the institutions as much as we want to. It is raising awareness. It is having the conversations with somebody else. It is even having an ounce of influence on somebody else and telling them that you are worth it and you should go out there and change it if you believe that it needs to be changed. Anything that you believe that has to be changed. And I want to thank you both for sharing that insight. Not, not many of us are comfortable kind of putting our masks down because I know I am not. When I have to be vulnerable, when I have to go into spaces in which it's not only I recognize my my power, right? I recognize my power amongst other like Latinx spaces and other spaces of, of politics. And I just think to myself, I'm doubt like I doubt myself every single day. But I believe in something that is beyond me. I believe on the women that are going to be listening to, to you, both of your words, the women that are going to be picking up that article, picking up those books, and they're going to find a piece of themselves that they didn't seem possible. I want to thank you both for being here, sharing your time with me, and also for being the forces of nature that you are. The movement needs folks like you, professors like you, Dr. Montoya, researchers that believe and not just the the research aspect of it but believe in teaching it believe in in empowering those that come through their classrooms that come through the doors and i say that with the utmost respect as well because there's i know professors that without them i would have just quit grad school i would have quit college from the get-go i would have been like no way if you don't nobody here is empowering me nobody here believes in me and so just you know the montoya fan club Meetings are on Wednesdays, it's mine, uh, no, I'm kidding. But it is very, it is very true. And I and I know that I don't just speak for uh, Mariana or myself when, when I mentioned that it's so important to see women that, that look like us, that sound like us, that believe in things like us, that make it worthwhile to be in these spaces. And Mariana, you know, I, I know you're a trailblazer. Kudos to you for being part of, the conversations that need to be had, but also the work. I know I don't just speak for myself and even in the hour that we have had together, when I know that what you are bringing is revolutionary.